It's increasingly uncommon in the church to find evangelicals of different persuasions actually being able to get on together. And I just want to say to you, as we were singing that song, uh, the fact that we have people from rather different emphases gathering together in the one room is an extraordinary thing. And I hope you realize how incredibly powerful that is spiritually. I think that's what Ephesians teaches us. The great power of the Christian church is its unity. Because that's what speaks against all the division that the principalities and powers seek to bring. But Jesus has broken down that middle wall of division and he's made us one. So we have this kind of oneness going on here. I just hope you realize how precious that is. And I want to thank you, first of all, for your... Oops, I'm in trouble here. No? Is that not working? Or I should just keep going. But that's my Mac. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to really be disciplined here. And Funny how this is all going on. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, don't you think? Maybe that's the problem with the apple on the front here. Um, would you like a hand? Can I do something for you? <laughs> like a mum, okay. Uh, so I, I just want to say, you know, thank you for being gracious. Not, first of all, with me, uh, because I know sometimes... I'm a bit rambunctious, uh, but I also want to say thank you to you for being gracious to one another and realizing that actually honoring the Jesus we love and serve is probably more important sometimes than some of the other debates we have. I know there are important debates, but they do rank a little bit. So all of that in my fumbling way to say thank you. I think this is an incredible thing that's going on spiritually. So God bless you. And are we ready? Hopefully. Hopefully. Here we go. Ta-da! Round of applause. <laughs> uh, we didn't quite finish this uh, yesterday. That's my fault. I need to be more disciplined, I think, in getting through the material. But you might recall that the last thing we spoke about was when Yahweh stood on the rock and said to Moses, whack me and see what happens. And you get this amazing demonstration of the I am in ways that Abraham had never seen, nor Isaac, nor Jacob. It was a stunning moment. Now, this standing on the rock, I think, informs what goes on with the golden calf incident. Now, I want to just finish with this one, and then we'll move on to the Holy Spirit. But I'm sure you know the story. They've come to the mountain, and you might recall from Exodus 3 and 6, that the sign that God was behind all of this would be that they would worship him on that mountain and here they are at the mountain so this is really probably the climactic moment to which everything's been pointing in the exodus so far so in exodus 19 the glory cloud has descended there's been that astonishing covenant moment in exodus 24 and then what happens in exodus 32 well in spite of everything they've seen the plagues the crossing of the red sea all of those things what do they do? They end up making a golden calf. So Moses has gone up the mountain. They're saying, we don't know what's happened to this guy, Moses. What we need is to have some kind of object that actually demonstrates God's presence to us. Notice the presence language again. It's absolutely critical. But a couple of questions here. First of all, why build a calf? I mean, if you're Canadian, what about a golden beaver? Or what would you have here in Ireland? A golden shamrock or something? I don't know. What's the... Okay. Is that the right thing to say here? Or... <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, okay, moving right along. Certainly not a golden kangaroo. Anyway. Well, there's lots of debate about this, but um, my particular line would be, I think what they're echoing is what they learnt in Egypt. There was something called the Apis bull cult in Egypt, and they would get the image of a bull, and they chose a bull for several obvious reasons. One is the bull has very powerful horns at the front and some undercarriage at the back. And those two things speak to power and fertility. And they connect that with the creation. And the bull would have a sun disc between its horns and an enraged female cobra. That's what Pharaoh will wear in his crown that kind of represents the power of Egypt. So they build this thing, and then they would expect the creator god... Tar or Amon Ray, depending on your particular beliefs, to stand on the back of the calf. So that's probably what they're doing here. They're thinking, well, who knows where Moses has gone? 
But actually what we really need now is God's presence and we know how to get that. We're going to build a calf. Now, some people think in doing this that Israel's worshipping the gods of Egypt. But really? What have they just seen going on? They've seen Yahweh completely cream. That's a technical term. Completely cream those gods. Or maybe even demonstrate that they don't exist. In fact, if you read the text carefully, it's not actually clear that they're worshipping the gods of Egypt. So even though you get that language gods running through this text... That translation is the English translation of Elohim, the word that basically describes the God that we met in Genesis. And then in verse 5, Aaron says to Israel, after they've made the golden calf, tomorrow we will hold a festival, a hag, to Yahweh. So I want to suggest to you that in their minds, they're not abandoning Elohim. And why would they? They know that he's the creator. What they're doing is trying to access his presence in a way that they know. Can you hear that? I don't think they are abandoning Elohim. But what they're doing actually is using their own rationality or their own sentimental imagination that turns Yahweh, who is who he is, into something they can make sense of. Something that's more familiar to them. And you see what's going on? That's an utter denial of everything Yahweh said from the beginning. I am who I am, don't guess. And they insist on making him into something that they know how to deal with. And can I suggest that that might be a problem for many of us as Christians? That God ends up getting made in an image that's more comfortable for us, that fits our either rationality or our sentimentality. And, you know, it's not some nice little neat peccadillo. No, 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 no. This is actually presuming to redefine who Yahweh is. And that is idolatry. It's possible to be a Christian and to be a profound idolater. Because of what we do to the God whom we say we worship, the way we turn him into something that actually suits our expectations. Now, anyone knows in the ancient world that this kind of act deserves destruction. No one would have any question about God's response. Moses, stand aside, I will destroy these people. That's justice and nobody would ever question it. What Israel has done is absolutely heinous. It's a, just a fundamental rebellion and rejection of who Yahweh actually is. But then this incredible thing happens. It's astonishing. In verse 11, Moses goes up the mountain and he implores the Lord and the text says, his God. Notice that? He implores Yahweh, his God. Why does the text say that? Because Israel, in saying that Yahweh is like this calf, have actually abandoned him. He's no longer their God when they do that. They've repudiated that relationship. So Moses goes up there, sovereign Lord of the universe, Think about your reputation. Think about what the people in Egypt will say. And you know what happens next? Utterly incredible. God relents. Yahweh changes his mind. And this is the point at which the rationalists among us go completely haywire. Oh, no, 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 it can't mean that. God knew all along that Moses was going to ask that question. We find all these reasons to get around what the text actually says. I remember being at an evangelical conference in North America, and a Jewish rabbi really took us to task over this. He said, you say you're Bible-believing Christians, but you keep trying to square this circle so God becomes the comfortable slipper that you're accustomed to. No, he relents. That's what the text says. Yes, a human being changed God's mind. And then we have to ask ourselves, in whose image are we making this Yahweh? Have we already determined what he looks like and so we know? Oh, we have to adjust this text now to fit. Is that what we're doing? It's a stunning moment, mind-boggling. Moses says, Yahweh, I've been watching you. I know something of who you are. 
Yes, Israel truly deserves judgment. I know that. But remember your promises to Abraham. Now, don't ask me to explain this. I can't explain this any more than I can explain the Trinity. It just doesn't fit. But this is what God does. So the Lord relents. But he says to Moses, okay, I won't destroy them, but I will not go up with them to the land. I'll send a messenger instead. And Moses says, no way. The land without your presence is not worth having. What will mark us out as your people if not your presence? Can you get that? It's absolutely critical, folks. Churches, buildings, and you know this, wonderful choirs, wonderful worship services, they don't actually make us particularly special. What marks us out as God's people is his presence. The real tangible presence of God among us. Life-giving Yahweh, that's what marks us out. Moses knows that. We don't want the stuff if you're not there. And then finally, remember that I am who I am? Remember way back in Exodus 3 and 6 when Moses says, so if the people ask me who sent me, whom shall I say? And Yahweh's response is, tell them I am sent you. You see what's going on? Finally, the I am gets a predicate. Who is this Yahweh? How's he defined? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name Yahweh. And here it is. I am the one who will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now, some of you might recognize this text because it's the one Paul quotes in Romans 9. And some of us read that text as though God decides long before you're born, you're in and you're out. But that's because we don't know where this comes from. The whole point of Romans 9 at this particular juncture is to say, oh, so you think because Israel has treated Jesus so badly that God should abandon them? You think it's unjust that he should still remain faithful to them? You don't know Yahweh because it's never been about justice with Israel. It's always been about who Yahweh is. I am who I am. I don't give Israel what they deserve. I give them what they need. And stunningly, a human being is involved in that process. Now that's worth pondering for the next week as you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our current world. That somehow, profoundly, we are involved in this. That God wants to hear from us. This is all about God not giving us what we deserve, but he's giving us what we need because of who he is. You see that? And what undergirds all of this? Because this is a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now you hear those numbers, third and fourth versus thousands? This is the most extraordinary asymmetry in the Bible. Right, so third and fourth generation. Can you see this thing? Maybe you can see the, you see the water bottle. How about this paper? See that? So let's do four. One, two, three, four. Okay, judgment. Third or fourth generation. But God's amazing predisposition to mercy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. I'm not even near a thousand yet. Can you see that? The unbelievable and overwhelming commitment of God to showing us mercy. That's his heart, folks. That's what it means to be people of Yahweh. That's why tomorrow when we look at Jesus, people keep coming to him for what? For mercy. Because he has compassion on them. That's what it means to be Christian. 
If you like, Christian is another way of spelling compassion. And it's compassion because that's who Yahweh is. That's what we should be known for. We don't give people what they deserve. We give them what we all need. Grace, mercy, compassion. Stunning this overwhelming predisposition of God toward mercy and compassion. That's who we are. And then look at what comes next. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Oh, what a great response. When you sing these songs, morning and evening, about the great mercy of God, bow to the ground, worship him. And now look at what he says. If now I have found favor, it's a form of the word grace, in your sight, O Lord, pray let the Lord go with us. And most English translations have the word although. But those who know a little bit of Hebrew, the particle is key. And that word key can also be translated because. And I think that's what it means here. Moses is asking for God's presence, not in spite of the fact that we're sinful, but because we are sinful, we need a God like this. Got that? You and I, stiff-necked, rebellious, selfish, me first, all that kind of stuff. This is exactly the kind of God we need. A God whose initial predisposition overwhelmingly is to show mercy and grace, even in the face of our most outrageous idolatry. And humans are involved in this. You see that? It's just mind-boggling that you and I can talk to God about stuff and actually change his mind. Some of you might feel the earth kind of wobbling a bit under your feet there, but um, got to go with this text. Now, you know, it's not guaranteed because in Jeremiah 15, 1, God himself refers back to this moment and he says to Jeremiah, even if Samuel and Moses stood before me, I will not relent. It's not a guarantee. Prayer is not about control. We don't pray to control the situation. We pray on the basis of a deeply trusting relationship. I think that's what you learn from this golden carp incident. Our despicable idolatry brings forth God's incredible mercy and compassion. And humans are involved in that process. Well, you can understand then the Shema Hopefully in a different light. Here, O Israel, Yahweh the Lord, our God, Yahweh the Lord is one. What have you learned about Yahweh? He's the creator, but he also stands on the rock and says, you think I'm like the gods of Egypt? Whack me and see what happens. Let me bleed living water for you. And in the face of our idolatry, which absolutely deserves devastating judgment because of who he is, mercy and compassion so can I just uh, suggest to us now that whenever we read about the Lord Jesus that we keep this in mind because this is the Lord whom Jesus is this is the Lord that's been revealed to us in the scriptures this is the one whom we follow right so um, now we need to launch into the rest of the material here took a little time there I'm afraid 15 minutes or so but that shouldn't be too bad so the Trinity uh, and what I'd like to do is pick up on a couple of texts. And we're going to talk about the Spirit again. And I'll read uh, a couple of texts to you here. And then off we go. Therefore, do you want to stand up for this one, if you can, after that last little serve? (laughs) Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That's what the golden calf incident was all about. The sake of Yahweh's holy name. Which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord says the Lord God when through you I display my holiness before their eyes 
And what does God's holiness look like? I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, golden calf, I will cleanse you. And a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone. That's what idols have, hearts of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And then Joel adds, then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And you know this very well. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm going to be following the biblical pattern, and we actually meet the Holy Spirit before we meet Jesus. So now we come to the Spirit, uh, whom I think for many Western Christians is the silent, if not forgotten, member of the Trinity. Uh, for many of you, you've probably heard this before, the Trinity is effectively Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. Right? Uh, and that's great for Scripture, but um, it's actually Spirit in there. I think I want to say, too, it's got to be an awful tragedy in the classic sense of the word that the Spirit who was sent to make us one has so often become the touchstone for such tension and division amongst God's people. Something's not right for that to happen. Finally, our church historians tell me that the 20th century is regularly described as the Pentecostal century. And I don't have any particular agenda here except to notice that if you look at the church around the world, the most massive growth is in those churches that really do have a real experience of the Spirit's powerful and transforming presence, where it's a real and existential part of their daily life. So I think the average Christian... Uh, around the world is 30, she's black, and she's Pentecostal. That's your average Christian. So uh, we're on the fringes right now. Got that? There's a huge amount of material on this. Uh, I'm going to be able to touch just on a few. So Yahweh, over 6,000 times. Spirit of God or Spirit of Yahweh, maybe 400. Now notice that, Spirit of God and Spirit of Yahweh. There's no tension because Elohim and Yahweh are the same person. Just God revealing himself more personally as Yahweh at the Exodus. What's interesting is the Holy Spirit only occurs three times. And we'll come back, uh, come back to that probably at the end if we have time to get there. So here's what I'm hoping to look at. Uh, and again, I'm going to try and follow the um, historical revealing of all of this. We'll talk about the moment of creation. Uh, we'll talk about Exodus and Yahweh. That's important. Uh, then we go to the Judges where you find that the judge is full of the Holy Spirit building God's people, often in holy war, which I think informs Ephesians, but we'll do that uh, maybe later on in the week. Then, of course, the prophets. We'll talk about their great prophetic hope, especially the one that he, of Ezekiel that we just looked at. And that will get us finally to John the Baptist. He's the one who invents the language baptism in the Spirit, by the way. That's a, a John the Baptist term, not primarily a Christian one, if you like. And that will get us to Jesus' baptism and then... Tomorrow, Jesus and the day after that will be focused on what the Trinity and the Spirit, Father and Son, have to do in the life of the church. So this will get us just up to the threshold of the coming of Jesus. So just a couple of things. First of all, about creation. There are two real concerns in the creation narrative. The first one is creation is God's temple and human beings are made in God's image. Now, I covered this back in 2013, I think. I'm sure Ian Provence talked about it similarly to you at some point. So this shouldn't really be new, and we won't go over it in any kind of depth. But the first thing we notice is we have initially what? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. The Hebrew is tohu wavohu. That sounds like something you buy at a New Age festival made of honey and cream milk or something like that, okay? Uh, or maybe that stuff that's formless and empty, you know, tofu, okay? Uh, some people apparently love that. Good on them. God bless them. They probably need it. <laughs> and then you get the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this, you might notice in your English Bibles there's sometimes an alternative translation. It will talk about a wind from God hovered, or some of them read a mighty wind swept over. 
And there's some justification for that because the word ruach can mean wind and Elohim can actually mean mighty. It's rare, but it can mean that. So some people think in a context of the deep, chaos, formlessness, a reference to God would be inappropriate in that messy situation. Uh, gee, I wonder what their lives are like. I think in my messy life, a reference to God would be really appropriate and in fact needful, right? Because I am a stiff-necked person. Well, I can see some of the reasoning for that, but the point is nowhere else in Scripture does Ruach Elohim ever mean a mighty wind. It always means the Spirit of God. And in Psalm 104, verse 30, where uh, this is a psalm that celebrates God as creator, it's his spirit that creates and gives life to his creation. So I'm going to go with the traditional argument that this in Genesis is a reference to the spirit of God hovering over the waters. Now, given that creation is God's temple, I'd like to characterize the spirit as the architect of God's creation. The spirit is the architect of God's creation. That's the first place you see the spirit, right at the very beginning in the opening scene. Yahweh's spirit, or the spirit of Elohim, hovering over the waters. Now that word hovering also occurs in one other place, Deuteronomy 32.11, and it's used as a metaphor for God forming and protecting his people. Nice link between those two. Because if you know the Exodus, it's also a new creation. And we talked about that, light in the darkness, wind over the water, Red Sea dividing, dry land appearing. That'll echoes creation imagery. And that's why you find running through Israel's scriptures that the Exodus is often seen as a creation. That's why in the New Testament, lots of new Exodus imagery and we're new creation. They go hand in hand together. Okay? So, the Spirit as the architect of God's temple. Now, the next thing, people made in God's image. Spirit is not mentioned in that initial statement at the end of Genesis chapter 1. But if you can recall, when we spoke about the formation of images in the ancient world, uh, you might, well, let me just go through it very briefly for you. Uh, what they would do in the pagan world is they build an image of their God. And they'd often do it in a sacred garden. Doesn't that sound interesting? Adam and Eve in a garden, in a sacred garden. And they'd maybe carve out a wooden core and cover it with uh, gold, silver, precious gemstones, etc. That's the first thing. They'd form the image. The second thing they do is they'd animate the image. So they gather around it, properly sanctified, they'd utter these incantations, and they'd open the ears, the eyes, the mouth. The Egyptians called it the mispay ritual. And what they're doing is they're actually bringing life to the image, and central to that would be to invite the fiery ruach, the fiery spirit of the god, whether Amon Ray or Ta or Baal or Marduk or whomever into that image, and at that point, the image came alive and was the physical presence of the God upon the earth. So from that perspective, you can't talk about image of God language without talking about the Spirit. And it's got to be physical. So guess who you are? You and I were designed to be the physical presence of God upon the earth. Now, as his image is not as God, you can have thousands of images all across the ancient world and those images can be defaced or destroyed. It doesn't in any way impact the God whose images they are, except he won't be very happy. But that's who human beings are. Now, a little comment here, by the way. You do understand that in the Hebrew Bible, there are seven senses, not five. And the two additional ones are to speak and something called kinesthesia or the ability to move. So can I suggest to you, even though you might not think the image of God language occurs very frequently, every time you see humans seeing, hearing, speaking, moving, that's image of God language. And from that perspective, it runs all the way through. And if you remember from 2013, what does Jesus do most? Eyes, ears, mouths, limbs, restoring the image of God. And of course, when John the Baptist preaches, what he offers is just the water. Only Jesus can do the spirit thing. And that's what really enables the image to be the image. And if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, what do you have? Wind and fire. Exactly the iconography, the image now being indwelt by the Spirit of the God that enables the image to live and to be alive. So what's going on here actually is a wonderful, ironic reversal of ancient thinking. They thought they built temples for their gods. And Yahweh says, no, 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 no. I built my own temple 
and I build it for you. And then we often think that somehow right, we make images of the God and Yahweh says, no, 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 you don't make images of me, I make you in my image. That's part of the reason why the golden calf thing is such a problem. It's reversing that creational mandate where God is the one who makes us in his image. We don't return the favour. So two things then. The spirit is the architect of the maker, God's creation temple, and humans are designed to be indwelt by that spirit. So why? So that we can also be makers. You might recall I spoke about that when uh, the second day we talked about what goes on in creation. It doesn't start with the doctrine of God. It starts with what God does. And after that, it's all about what humans do. So the spirit is intimately linked with doing stuff, with creating. Get that? Now, just to reiterate, that's one of the huge problems, I think, in theological education. We're all about description and thinking and not much about doing. So you do a class on theology, then you have to do practical theology. Like, are you kidding me? Where did that division come from? Not from reading your Bible. Well, I can tell you where it comes from. It comes from the influence of Hellenism, where the only stuff that really matters is how you think. Not so much what you do. That's why the janitors in our churches don't get much respect, but the theologians do. Mm. That is not a Christian idea. Now, why is this link between the image and the spirit so important? It's precisely because humans make, and even after the fall, we continue to make. Who builds the first city? A murderer called Cain. And what does it look like at the end of the Bible? It's not a new garden that comes down from heaven. It's a new city. And you see how profoundly and seriously God takes our ability to create and to make. Can you see that? That city built out of rebellion ends up being taken up into God's plan. Now, designers will tell you that every design choice, as I said before, reflects your character, right? And that's what the Spirit's all about. It's all about forming God's character in us. Or He is all about forming God's character in us. Beg your pardon. Well, that brings us to the Exodus. And we're not surprised, are we? This is when, of course, Yahweh revealed Himself. What might surprise us are the two references or two key ideas related to the Spirit. And they're to do with, oh, look at that, tabernacle, like a temple, and forming people. We've already seen that, Genesis, creation and image. The first person in the biblical text where God speaks of filling someone with his spirit is actually Bezalel. And what's Bezalel? He's the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I filled him with divine spirit, ability, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft to design artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, all that kind of stuff. This is making. And of course, the tabernacle is a mini cosmos. It's a model of the universe. And I wonder if this is an anticipation of what's meant to go on with the Davidic kings and the judges. Their job is to help make this place, right? to really look like God's tabernacle, its temple. If creation is God's temple, are we to see here the Spirit filling us in order to make us ones who then do the work of the entire creation? Something like that going on, I think so. Then we get Moses. Numbers 11, we learn that God has placed his spirit on Moses. And what's he doing? He's acting as God's agent, part of the redemption of Israel from Pharaoh's chaotic and, and death-like reign, and also forming Israel into God's image-bearing son, if you like, through the giving of Torah, etc. So Torah is all about reflecting God's character and his wisdom. And it's not just Moses. In Numbers 11, when the task of leading Israel is too much for Moses and there's going to be a change in polity, what attests that? It's the coming of the Spirit upon somebody. Wouldn't that be an interesting mark of eldership? You get to be an elder when actually we can see signs of you being powerfully indwelt by God's presence and not just the size of your checkbook or how long you've been in the church. How would that be? <laughs> it's very quiet out there. Okay, let's move along. <laughs> um, Oh, sorry, no, I <laughs> didn't mean to ask for that. Um, 
but, but it's a stunning thing and they prophesy. That's what testifies to the fact that God is now working in them. Happens with Saul too, actually. Israel's first king. What's the sign that God's in this? The guy prophesies. Now you understand what's going on in Acts. What's the sign that God's in this thing that he's doing through Jesus? They prophesy. Powerful presence of God's spirit speaking his wisdom into the world. Now there's a wonderful little moment here. Uh, Joshua, right? The two guys who can't make it to the gathering. They're on the outside in the camp and they start prophesying. And Joshua runs in and says, Moses, Moses, stop them, stop them. They're doing what they shouldn't do. And they'll got Moses' wonderful response. Are you jealous for my sake? You think this is about me, Joshua? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord will put his spirit on them. That sound familiar? Yeah, we've just read the text, Joel chapter 2. And, and I do wonder sometimes, this is going to be a little provocative, if one of the reasons we're nervous about the spirit is some of us just want to be in control and we don't want everyone somehow having a voice in this, what happens if a whole bunch of people start hearing from the Spirit of God. What does that do to me as the great teacher? Might that be one of the nervousnesses around this? Who's going to be in charge? Just a thought. Moving on, um, we see the Spirit at work in the judges, of course. And what's interesting about the judges is a couple of things. First of all, it's another shift in leadership. So you get the Spirit coming upon the judges to do this work. And mostly it's in, term, in, in times of need when you need someone to be raised up and to deliver God's people. Are we now in a time of need? You think the Western church is in a time of need? Or am I the only one who thinks that? Well, if we are, might we not expect that God might be involved in some special outpourings of his spirit? Because we need that. Can't do it in our own strength. And what these judges do is they carry out the holy war. Now, we don't carry out holy war like they did, but that's Ephesians. Ephesians is all about putting on that armor, which is actually God's armor from the book of Isaiah. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Okay. Now, one other thing that you might find interesting is uh, probably surprising for most of us. Guess which judge has twice as many references to the Spirit than all the other judges combined? And the answer is Samson. That's a whole other wonderful story. He's the only judge that Israel doesn't ask for. Do you know that? So he's entirely God's own work, which means if he's the dropkick, I was taught he was in Sunday school, God really does have a case to answer, and Hebrews needs to explain why he's listed as a hero of the faith. But what if I tell you, actually, there's no figure in Israel's scriptures that's more like Jesus than Samson? Hmm. Not just the judges, the kings. Now, there is this idea around that actually kingship was God's second best, and I was taught that once. But, you know, um, if that's the case, what is God doing in Genesis 17 promising Abraham and Sarah that among their descendants will be kings? And then look at what Jacob has to say about Judah. The scepter will not depart from you. That sounds to me like kingship has always been part of God's plan. Which is why I'd argue that the issue in Samuel is not kingship. It's kingship like the nations. That's the thing that's the problem. They want a king that's like the nations. And God gives them one. His name's Saul. And that word means in Hebrew, you asked for it. Right? <laughs> God gives them what they ask for and he actually puts his spirit into Saul. So even though they've rejected God, God's plan for a king like the nations, it doesn't mean God gets in a huff. He still says to Saul, okay, I'll put my spirit upon you. I'll change you into a different person. God does everything in his power. It's just that Saul actually goes off and becomes faithless because he becomes more concerned about his own honor and his own standing than the kingdom of God. So 1 Samuel 10, 6, Samuel says to Saul, the spirit of Yahweh will come upon you in power and you will prophesy and be changed into a different person. Uh, so I, you know, I want to say to some of my Pentecostal friends, the prophecy is great, folks, but where's the change? Haven't really seen a different person here. <laughs> how can you have the spirit and not have transformation? Not quite sure how that works. 1 Samuel 6, 16 here, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the presence of his brothers 
And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Mm, That's interesting, isn't it? It's funny what we do with the Holy Spirit. You ever seen those kind of wonderful soap ads? There's a very attractive young woman and she kind of comes out of the water. It's all slow motion. You know, the hair kind of goes up gently like this and beautiful spray. And, and then there's this kind of little lilting dove coming along. And, you know, it's, uh... The Holy Spirit is not dove soap. <laughs> when the Spirit turns up, things start rocking, to coin a phrase. I think the writers of Israel's scriptures would be stunned when they hear us talk about all oh, the Spirit's present and they don't see any evidence of his power. Aren't you a Bible-believing Christian? Yeah. Okay, so what happens when the Spirit turns up? Go back and read the scriptures. Oh, we all just sit there nicely. No. Then we have the prophets. Did you like that transition? Pretty neat, isn't it? You too. Buy a Mac. You can have this. Okay. Uh, this is Mark Chagall's wonderful painting of the vision of Isaiah. I won't try and explain the painting. I'm not sure Mark could. But anyway, um, what do we have here? This is what the prophets are known for. Micah contrasts himself with the false prophets. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of Yahweh, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Can I just say that to some of my Pentecostal friends, to talk about the Holy Spirit and not be concerned with justice, there's a problem. Something is out of joint. Because the Spirit's present, that's what should be the hallmark of what we're on about. The holiness and what is right. Now, a couple of things that are notice, uh, worth noticing here. First of all, the Spirit did not rest on everyone. Only a few selected for special tasks. One or two here, one or two there. But the bulk of the people did not know this experience. And the second element I've already alluded to is the language of power that's associated with the presence of the Spirit. Well, throughout this prophetic history, there begins to emerge this future hope of the presence of the Spirit among all. And there are two strands to this hope. First of all, the Messiah and then all of God's people. So in terms of the Messiah, there's the shoot from Jesse. Some of you might know about the Jesse tree that you celebrate at Christmas time. So here it is being picked up here. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Wisdom, understanding, counsel and power, knowledge and fear of the Lord. Again, um, you know, I'd like to say to some of my Pentecostal friends, so on about the spirit, can I see fruits like this? And unfortunately... Uh, my tradition is not always known for wisdom and understanding. Sorry about that. Okay? Um, not always fear of the Lord either. Now, if that also applies to you, so be it. But I'll just talk to my own tribe if that's okay and try and keep myself out of trouble. But that's what this looks like. Also, upon the, Isaiah, the servant of Isaiah, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations but remember what God's justice looks like he's the one who says I'm going to stand on the rock whack me and see what happens he's the one who says after the golden calf I know what you deserve I'm going to give you something else what if that's the nature of God's justice I used to attend a, a congregation back in Australia called truth and liberation concern and we dressed in khaki greens and toted AK-47s to church not <laughs> but it sounds like it you'd be forgiven right? but you know very strong on social justice and, and I understand that but have you ever noticed that that word justice doesn't occur very often in, Israel, in the New Testament you get righteousness I think what's going on actually is this whole thing has been subverted in a new way by love and mercy and compassion we've learned a new grammar of what justice is justice is not about my right it's about what I deserve. Sorry, not what I deserve, but what I need. And that's what I extend to other people too. Very different vision of what justice is, it seems to me. Then the herald of salvation, Isaiah 61. This is the one who announces God's personal coming. The spirit of the sovereign Yahweh is on me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Yes, of course, you all know that from Luke chapter 4. Now, alongside all of that is also the promise, not just for the Messiah, but for all of God's people. Now, what's interesting about this, if you have a look at Isaiah 32, 15, it talks about when the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field. And the fertile field now flourishes like a forest. Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water, reference to the Spirit, on the thirsty land streams, on the dry ground, I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Can you notice that together? The renewal of creation and the outpouring of the Spirit go hand in hand. That's exactly Romans 8. Romans 8 talks about life in the Spirit over against life in the flesh. And one of the hallmarks of life in the Spirit is the revelation of the children of God. And that's what creation is groaning for. It's waiting to be set free from its bondage. And that's intimately connected to the revelation of God's children, spirit indwelt. So can I also suggest to you that the hallmark of spirit-filled people is a concern for God's creation. That's what we're on about. We know it's his temple. This is not being a greenie. This is being biblical. It's what it means to be God's people. So notice again that link, people made in God's image, but the creation as God's temple. Well, here's the text we read before. A new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you. Remove the heart of stone. That's all image language. Now God's spirit, this wonderful fleshly heart from God placed within us. And then Joel 2 that we've seen before. The great hope of Israel. I won't read through all of that. But this is what Moses hoped for. Are you jealous on my account? Joshua, do you think I'm fussed about being the leader? So that somehow it's Moses as the great founder of the church that's the issue here. I would that all of God's people were prophesying. That all of us were prophets. It's not about me. Not about my control. It's about Yahweh doing his thing. And I have to say that's actually one of the hallmarks usually of Pentecostalism worldwide. And sociologists have noticed this. There's an incredible drive towards democratization in those Pentecostal churches. It tends to undermine elitism whether to do with money or status or even gender. All those things that shape the ancient world, the spirit just seems to tr transcend all of that. So this is wonderful stuff. But there's a real heartbreaking side to this. In spite of all of these promises, Israel isn't listening. Days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, a famine not of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They will stagger from sea to sea, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. What's going on here? Well, some of you might have heard of Eli. Remember Eli back in Samuel? Kindly old man with a couple of kids he can't control. Uh, that's not the Eli of the Bible. Eli of the Bible is wicked. He's wicked through and through because he honors his children more than God. When the man of God turns up in 1 Samuel 4 and talks to him, it's very, very powerful stuff. But here's the thing that's quite, I don't know, terrifying about this story. Here's Eli presiding over this corrupt arrangement as high priest. And it says, the word of God was rare in the land. And we understand why. Because Eli didn't listen. And then there comes this moment when Samuel is in the tabernacle and he hears this voice. Remember that? Shamuel, Shamuel, right? And he goes off and says to Eli, what? why doesn't God just say, hey, no, no, it's me over here, right? Why does he let Samuel go and speak to Eli three times? Because that's part of Eli's judgment. It's not as if God's not speaking. It's just that God's no longer speaking to him. And folks, I just want to... Dear, dear friends, especially the pastors and elders among us, don't let this be us. We grow old, we grow fat, accustomed to our ways, heavy and immovable, unable to change. That passion for Jesus has long since died down. We have all the right words. We've said them many times. We can pray the right prayers. We can go through the motions because we know how to do it. And sometimes our fixed church liturgies don't help us at all in all of that. 
we can write our sermons and ever so slowly we hardly notice that we no longer experience the stirring word of God. And then one day, a young man or a young woman in their 20s hears from God and we realize it's not that God's not speaking, he's just not speaking to me anymore. We don't want that to happen, ever. And so what Amos warned about is what happens to them. Maccabees talks about this great distress in Israel, which had not been seen since the time when the prophets had ceased to appear. They call this the period of the quenched spirit. No prophets. I'll just go for a couple of minutes if that's okay, and then we'll call it to a conclusion. Josephus talks about this. He says, from Artaxerxes, that's the time after Malachi to our present day, the complete history of Israel has not really been written, and it's not seen worthy to do so because we no longer have prophets among us. So you end up with this terrible time, and then one day, you're in the fish market in Jerusalem, and you hear this excited conversation at the stall next door, and you kind of listen over, and, and they're talking about there's this guy down by the Jordan. Have you heard him? John the Baptist. Amazing. You should hear him. And he's dressed, as we heard the other night, just like Elijah. Could it be? Could it be that after 400 years of silence, God is now speaking to us? Now imagine that. You're the people of God. What marks you out is his presence. And you haven't had it for 400 years. All those generations going to synagogue, hearing scripture, thinking, will it be in my generation, my generation, and dying at 80 and never having seen it. Generation after generation after generation after generation. And now, John the Baptist. One is coming who's more powerful than I am. I can do the water thing, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to Jesus. And we're going to continue with him tomorrow. Thank you for indulging me. We've gone a few minutes over. Can I just quickly pray for you? Father, I do thank you for these good people. I really do thank you, Lord, for the wonder of seeing them all together in this place because they decided to put Jesus above all those other little things that we might be tempted to let divide us. Lord, I just want to thank you for that. It's so special. It's so wonderful. It's incredibly powerful spiritually. But Lord, you know, we have a, a big task ahead of us in our culture and we desperately need your Holy Spirit, whatever that might look like and in whatever way you choose to send him among us. But we do pray, Lord, that you'll help us to have a hunger and a desire to know you and to be filled with your spirit. That the one who hovered over the creation and who indwells the image and enables us to be alive, that this one might once again Bring about a new creation, not just in Coleraine or in Ireland, but all over the face of this earth, which you love and for which you gave your son. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.